This is Nursing Australia Week, a week of entertainment, education and energy for all Australian nurses. Proudly presented by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, Health Workforce Queensland, New South Wales RDN and Northern Territory PHN. Well, we've nearly made it. This is your Friday lunchtime and penultimate episode of Nursing Australia Week. I'm Suzanne Blackaby. Today, Matt St. Ledger takes us on a trip. We are going outside the country to see the COVID view from overseas. This is his interview with John Johnson, vaccination and epidemic response advisor with Medicine Sans Frontiers. Medicine Sans Frontiers or MSF Doctors Without Borders is a, is a brand that's very well renowned. And so I guess, would you just be able to let me know what 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 do they look like in in 2021? I mean, so if you've if you've never heard of MSF, it's an organization that was founded in 1971. It's a medical humanitarian aid organization, and so we're operating in 60 or 70 different countries around the world, mostly involved in uh, acute emergencies, so so conflict settings, uh, natural disasters, uh, epidemics, and a lot of uh, neglected and sort of unseen crises. Uh, and, and we like to focus also on um, sort of under serve populations, diseases that aren't uh, really uh, receiving a lot of treatment from other organizations. MSF's a fairly big actor in the humanitarian aid world. We have a a fairly large operating budget, um, five operational centers that are uh, based uh, in Europe and in uh, Africa and in the Near East. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how many international staff. I think somewhere in the 3,000 range uh, that that travel every year for work, and then uh, national staff and the uh, the tens of thousands um, that we work with uh, in different countries around the world. So I guess that that leads into our first question, which is uh, in the Australian media, and I guess this, you could probably be, the same could be said for a lot of Western media. Uh, the push on news is on the COVID situation developed countries, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of airtime given to the rest of the world. And so I guess what I'm curious about is, is given MSF's stake in the game, what are the current challenges that exist outside of the developed world? And could you paint a picture as to, as to what the COVID scenario is like currently from where you're sitting? So if you try to examine what what is the COVID situation um, outside of, of let's say the developed world, it's it's a bit less clear. So in in Europe, in the United States, and Australia, more more developed countries, um, you have very good surveillance systems and uh, lots of testing. Uh, going on for COVID. And so we're able to have a pretty good idea of the number of cases, the uh, mortality rate and things like that. Obviously, it's not 100%. We don't catch all of the cases. It's probably underestimated. Um, And then you know, the question about the severity is also hard to to get real granular numbers on. But we have a, a pretty good general idea of this is the number of cases, this is the number of deaths, uh, this is the number of hospitalizations. In a lot of countries where MSF works, you, you don't have such robust surveillance systems, and we're not able to capture the gravity uh, or the scope of COVID in these countries. You know, a lot of deaths may go unreported or they may not be counted as, uh, as COVID. So it's very difficult to look at a country, I'll, I'll just use the example of Niger because it's um, something we've been discussing internally recently. You know, it's a country where officially they've reported, you know, just a few hundred deaths and about 6,000 cases since the beginning of the epidemic. That's surely underreported. But at the same time, 
we're not seeing an enormous epidemic uh, uh, in this country. We, we know it's not that big. We know that there's not thousands and thousands of people dying in Niger. Um, while there may be more than the 200 or so that were reported, it's probably not as big of a deal as you see in uh, some Western countries. So one getting a, a real certain a real certainty about the um, the gravity of the situation is is difficult. Um, and at the same time, we may not see the same type of epidemic in a lot of these countries that we're seeing in the West. And and the reasons for that. And sorry, this is to go back into unpacking your question because it's a it's a complicated question. There's answer. quite a lot to it, so I do apologize. Yeah. So by all means, take your time. <laughs> but. Uh, but while we're not catching the number of cases, uh, certainly it's it's underreported. Um, at the same time, we're not seeing the same type of epidemic that you saw in the United States, in, in Brazil, in Peru, uh, in Italy, in uh, in England that you saw last year. And some of the reasons for that are, are the age of the population uh, and the factors of risk that they have. So if, again, referring to Niger, the average age of the population is around 15 years old. So it's just a much, much younger population in general than you have uh, compared to Italy or, you know, Florida in the United States. So you're going to have in that percentage of people, you know, a much lower uh, level of severity, fewer number of deaths. You, you don't have that many old people. And, and we know COVID is a disease that uh, is more severe among the oldest in the population, uh, among populations that have uh, heart disease, lung disease, uh, obesity. Uh, and a lot of populations where MSF works, they don't have those problems, which are actually considered Western problems. One thing, the surveillance is probably not that great. We don't have a clear picture of, of the number of cases, the number of uh, hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, and then the other thing is we're probably not seeing the same type of epidemic in these countries that we've seen elsewhere. Um, now, the big question that we've been asking ourselves for the last year has been, will we see the same type of severity that we saw in uh, in other countries in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East? And the answer to that is we don't know, but we've we've been surprised. I, I think uh, India was a good example of a country that has a young population uh, with fewer factors of risk than uh, European countries do or uh, other Western countries. And we did see a, a very big, severe uh, epidemic wave there. Um, and that was that was kind of a big surprise. So it's it's still something we're learning. And I think that's the case with everything COVID is we're learning week to week uh, something new. Yeah, that, that sort of you answered the second question there as as well. If you were a betting man, I guess, I mean, no one can really tell. But can you recently foresee the situation getting worse or dire in any of any of these developing countries, or it's still likely not, given the reduced risk factors? So I, I'm not a betting man. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I I I don't know. Um, I think when you're talking about a pandemic, we're, we're talking about something like, you know, uh, all of the countries in the world, 195 different countries, 195 different contexts. And and I think when you look at what we call developed countries and developing countries, some of the developing countries do have, you know, uh, different demographics that would put them at risk. Um, and where we've seen sort of worse COVID outbreaks, where MSF has been responding more heavily, has been in places um what we would call developing countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, Iraq. So countries that have 
a lot of uh, problems in their development, mostly linked to conflict, but they have um, an older population um, and, and other factors of risk that we don't necessarily see in sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, I, I think we will continue to see some bad outbreaks in certain of our contexts where MSF is working. Um, but I don't think that we can apply this idea that uh, COVID is, you know, X to every country that we're working in. And I, and I think some places will escape the pandemic with relatively little damage. Um, and I think some countries will will have the same sort of problems that we've seen, um, you know, earlier in the last two years in, in the West. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, that lends my next point or question. What do MSF currently have any insights on what a post-COVID world looks like? Or is there recognition that there perhaps isn't a post-COVID world and it's going to be a continuum? Yeah, so I, so I live in France, and, and the, the term that they use here a lot, and I think it's a good one, is um, to learn to live with the virus. Um, it's it's not looking like it's a disease that we're going to be able to eradicate, um, certainly not with vaccines. And I my, my, my job is to work on vaccination, so I, I'm very pro-vaccination, but um, I don't think vaccines alone are going to um, get us to a place where we can eliminate uh, COVID, like we did with um, smallpox or uh, like we're, we're getting around to doing with uh, polio and, and other diseases. So I, I think the virus will continue. Um, again, MSF's a humanitarian organization. We're not necessarily into the field of making predictions about what the the post-COVID world would look like. Or the, sure. Uh, or the world going forward, I guess I should say, because I, I, I would say it's probably never going to be post-COVID. Um, but what a lot of very smart people have put forward and what I've heard from a lot of discussions are that we're looking at something that will probably be like the 1918 pandemic. This was a, an H1N1 pandemic of uh, influenza that uh, that killed hundreds of thousands, thousands of people in the United States and in Europe and probably elsewhere around the world that we, again, didn't have great surveillance at the time, so we don't have correct figures. But what that turned into, um, because we never developed vaccines for this at the time, it turned into what we call now the seasonal flu. And that's something that has lived with us since then. Um, that's not the only seasonal flu, but it's one of them. And I, I think what we'll probably see with COVID is something like that, where uh, it will continue to circulate. It will probably become uh, more and more part of our lives and maybe to a certain extent less problematic, less lethal, um, less severe. Um, and we'll probably need to continue to have some sort of vaccination for the people in the population that are most at risk on a fairly regular basis. Um, mm-hmm. But that is complete speculation. And that's something I, I, sure. I think we'll, I, I've heard a lot of varying opinions about if we'll stop wearing masks at some point, or if this is something we're going to continue for a long time. Um, I think everyone hopes that we can get past that and, and kind of get back to being able to go to restaurants and have family gatherings without uh, concerns. And I think Vaccines are probably the best tool for helping us to get there. Um, but again, I, I, I am pessimistic that vaccination will get us to a, a collective immunity high enough to completely eliminate COVID from our lives. And so if I could just shift Kilter for a bit, the last couple of years or however long we've, we've been dealing with COVID, it feels like I've lost track of time in and out of lockdown. What do you, in your personal opinion or the opinion of the organisation, is it optimism um, that you've gained from this experience or what are the positive, what have been the positives out of the last couple of years in your field? So, I mean, there's been one 
very big positive. And and like I said earlier, before I was working on um, vaccines in general, I was working more on Ebola. And um, one of the challenges that you have um, that we were really looking at in Ebola epidemics is that you have very few Ebola epidemics and you have to take advantage of those epidemics to study the disease because you, it's very hard to study how to treat an Ebola patient outside of when you have Ebola patients. And, and something we've been able to do um, in COVID, and I think we can learn from this experience and apply this to other, other epidemics, is really that we need to be able to advance the science around a pathogen and around a disease during the epidemic. And that's not easy to do because obviously there there will be, you know, uh, a bit of trial and error and there will be a, a certain amount of misunderstanding about um, certain messages. I think masking was one that we saw where people were told not to wear masks in the beginning and then they were told to wear masks. Um, but uh, the ability to, to have a certain amount of humility and learn about the epidemic during the epidemic and be able to study new therapeutics, new vaccines um, in real time. And I think that's been the big good lesson learned from uh, COVID is that we can do that. And um, although I think a lot of people have said, oh, these vaccines were developed very, very fast and uh, it's not possible. If you look at the history of vaccination, it usually takes years and years to develop a vaccine. Well, that's that's actually the great thing that we've learned is that we can condense the timeline if we put effort into it um, and develop new vaccines, new therapeutics, and new treatment models uh, more rapidly. Uh, without compromising due diligence, right? Because that seems to be the argument that people have for that. They're like, oh, well, there's some there's some corners cutting and I'm sure it's in it's in every market. It's certainly here is is paid for some, you know, hesitance and you know the things that I, I'm not sure I don't, I'm not sure if it was such a such a problem within the EU, but certainly in Australia, we have stumbled a bit early on in the in the vaccination rollout, and then the complications with AstraZeneca seem to take center stage, and that sure. seemed to feed that that narrative, yeah. right? Sure. Um, so I mean. There's there's a couple things to that. One is no no vaccines have ever been as widely studied as these have. Um, if you look at just the sheer amount of information we have on these vaccines, it's far more than we ever had on the smallpox vaccine or, or the measles vaccine. Um, what we can't have uh, is long-term information on uh, therapeutics vaccines or COVID because we're only looking at a pandemic that's been going on for two years. So Whenever there's questions about, well, what are the effects of this after, you know, how long does the protection from the vaccine last? We won't know until we're able to look back and say this is how long it lasts. So that's the data we can't have about uh, about cutting corners and things like that. I, I don't know that any corners were were cut uh, because we're looking at we're looking at emergency use of most of these mm. therapeutics and vaccines. So, you know, this is not like um, this is not like when you introduce uh, a new drug for an existing problem and you roll it out slowly. This is when you're dealing with a pandemic that's affecting the entire world and it's an emergency and you have to do mm. something. When you talk about safety in medicine, uh, safety for vaccines, safety for therapeutics, you're always really just con considering risk versus benefit. So the benefit of you know a drug that will um, you know make you go bald, lose your appetite, uh, lose a lot of weight and feel terrible uh, if it's effective at treating your cancer that may kill you, we consider that a safe drug. Now, if 
a headache medicine has all those same side effects, we would say that's not a safe drug. And and what you're doing is you're looking at, well, the, the benefit of the drug is greater than the risk of these side effects. Mm. When you're looking at vaccination, it becomes much more complicated because when you vaccinate somebody, you are giving them a potential benefit. Um, you can't assure them at 100% that they will be exposed to COVID and get sick. You're You're telling them you're going to avoid getting sick, but we can't promise you that that uh, you will come in contact with COVID or get sick. So this is, um, it's harder for us to be able to weigh that potential risk of getting sick with COVID versus the benefit of the vaccine. When you talk about the vaccine side effects, obviously when you do vaccine studies, you study several thousand people. Um, most vaccine trials looked at, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people. You will not see rare side effects that happen only every one in 100,000 or every one in 200,000 people until you start vaccinating 100,000, 200,000 or more people. And, and so most of the vaccines that have come to market were not rolled out on hundreds of thousands of people before they came to market. They were studied with 20,000, 30,000 volunteers, and then they were licensed. And with all vaccines and all medicines, I should say, we, we see side effects. Um, and we see rare side effects, especially when you use them on a lot of people. And the reason we've seen this with AstraZeneca, with Johnson & Johnson, uh, myocarditis with um, the mRNA vaccines, um, is because we're vaccinating billions of people around the world. And so there are going to be uh, a certain amount of people that have bad reactions. And that's that's terrible uh, for those people. But vaccination is a public health initiative. And in that way, it's always not just a weighing of risk benefit for the individual, but also risk benefit for the population and the effect on the pandemic. And that's where the, the calculation gets very I guess, complicated ethically and involves lots of discussion. And this is why it's a, such a hot debate. But I, I think that there there are always risks with any medicine you take, with any vaccine you take. Sure. And finally, if I could ask you, this entire interview is about COVID. And I'm curious, how has COVID retracted from or pulled away from or, or what has been the, I guess, the casualties in the line of work that you do uh, with COVID sort of popping in over the top and is, is that does that cause you frustration i guess so the yeah the, the collateral damage of covid yeah, is enormous. yeah yeah so like i said my, my perspective I, I really focus on vaccination um what we saw in 2020 and, and 2021 was a massive reduction in utilization of public health services um, because of lockdowns, because of fear of COVID. People didn't want to go to the hospital and, and, and get COVID. They also didn't want to go to a doctor with symptoms of COVID and get sent to the hospital as a COVID patient. So people avoided going to the doctor for a year. Um, they avoided routine vaccination. And so uh, we will see and we're already seeing uh, measles epidemics, meningitis epidemics, yellow fever epidemics that we typically wouldn't expect because there's always going to be epidemics, but we're seeing them at a rate that we um, would not normally see. And and we know looking at, um, and I think measles is probably the, the easiest one to really measure because it's the, the vaccine that's given uh, uniformly around the world to all children, is that we're seeing something like 24 measles campaigns around the world that were delayed in 2021 because of COVID vaccination. Not mm -hmm. just because of COVID, but because of COVID vaccination, it took the place of the measles campaign. And so I, I think, 
in the next few years, if we're talking about a, a world after COVID or a world a little bit later down uh, the line with COVID, we're going to have to deal with a lot more epidemics, vaccine preventable diseases. And I think and it's less my area of expertise, but I think we're also going to see similar problems uh, with diseases that were neglected during COVID. So, yeah. uh, you know, malaria treatment uh, was was down. I think we'll see more problems with malaria, um, chronic health problems. I think people went a long time without being treated. And I, I think there's just going to be a lot of catch up. Mm. Um, and so there's certainly a huge collateral damage that we can expect from it. Yeah, there, that's there's certainly some in, t in relation to chronic health conditions. There's certainly some early data that's been reported uh, here in Australia um, about um, heart disease or, or or cardiac management, and they're already seeing anecdotally this sort of almost as we're opening up this sort of sharp upswing in, in acute hospital admissions for uh, acute MIs or whatever stuff that's potentially related to you know a couple of years ago they would have gone to yeah. the GP could this be prevented by taking a, a statin medication instead yeah. it's, it, they've just that's just neglected and, and and that's that's extended to you know cancer preventative you know cancer screening and etc and so forth so I think that was that that seems to be I mean there are some um pretty pretty good minds out there or in Australia at least that that are saying that 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 will probably be the next big problem that we'll have to deal with, which is yeah. what's fallen by the wayside, or like you said before, the collateral damage yeah. of COVID. I, I think you're right. I, th I think it was a lot of things that we do in prevention were sort of the, the first things to go when people were on lockdown or, or when they were not able to go see their GP. I appreciate your time. And this is a little bit off kilter, but I am just curious. You touched on before talking about developing countries, uh, one of the, the from and correct me if I'm wrong. The greatest differentiation is that in Western countries, you've got an older, older populations, right, versus younger. Is that the key? I guess the key defining reasons to to why they're not as affected by COVID is first part of it. But I guess the second part of it is in Australia, and I mean it's it's yet it's yet to pay out. But certainly with our indigenous population, you know the average age is is a lot younger. Um, mm. The level of comorbidities is 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 much higher, and there was a lot of a lot of I guess panic uh, as to what would happen if it gets to these remote communities with limited healthcare. Mm. That hasn't been fully realised, and I wonder yeah. if that supports exactly what you're saying potentially. Obviously, if I knew the answer, I'd. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think there's a lot of people that 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 look into this a lot more um, in detail than than I have, but just in general, I I think what we know about COVID is it tends to spread more indoors. The populations that are most at risk are older populations, populations uh, with you know that are overweight, obese, heart and lung disease, immunocompromised. When you look at a younger population, you've taken away most of those factors of risk, uh, especially a younger population that doesn't live in the West and go to McDonald's and drink Coca-Cola all the time. Um, so you have, you know, lower rates of obesity, and you also have, in a lot of a lot of contexts, you have people that live much more of their lives outside, and they're not in confined spaces with air conditioning all the time, like like we are in the United States. Um, and I think that's also a contributor to spread. Again, like I, I don't know the answer, but I, I think all of those things sort of make it that there are places that are, in theory, going to have lower severity or, or lower grade outbreaks than we saw elsewhere. But again, that's what we've all been saying. And we saw a big outbreak in India. 
big outbreaks in, in Peru, places that we were not necessarily expecting to see them. Thank you. Really appreciate sure. your time. Our state lockdowns may be lifting, but when it comes to COVID, nurses know there's still a lot of work to do. That's why APNA's 2021 Workforce Survey is the strongest way for you to tell our politicians what they're doing right with primary healthcare nursing and what they're getting wrong. As a nurse, do you feel valued for the additional hard work you've put in over the past 12 months? Now is your chance to tell our politicians what you think. With a federal election next year, you know they are listening. Visit apna.asn.au and click on the 2021 Workforce Survey link and have your say. That's it for this episode. And also, don't forget to enter our Spill Your Guts competition. Today, we are asking you to tell us your creepy ghost stories or related incidents from a clinic or a hospital or any kind of nursing workplace. You can text us your answers to 0417366831. That's 0417366831. Or email us at education at apna.asn.au. We'll announce the winner this afternoon. Catch you later. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia Week. A week just for you. For more information, visit APNA at www.apna.asn.au.